Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic for the third week of Lent. And the second reading comes from St. Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. And this is what it says about the crucifixion of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks alike, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. What do you get? You get a crucified man. We're going to talk about the crucifixion and how it's linked both to the Ten Commandments and to Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Stay tuned. So Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians says that the Jews want signs and Greeks want wisdom. So think about the challenge of the cross and why it is that all four Gospels talk about Jesus crucified, a horrible death, but what it might mean to both Jews and Gentiles. And so, first to the Jews. What is the sign of the Jews to a man who's crucified? Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23 says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is accursed by God. You shall not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. And so a crucified man, a man that hangs on a tree or is hung from a tree, um, this is a countersign. Why is it that God would choose to have his son hung on a tree knowing what Deuteronomy chapter 21 says? But it's the same stumbling block for the Gentiles um, because here's what Cicero says, and Cicero is actually a Roman politician and philosopher who was assassinated a couple of decades before Jesus was born. And here's what he says in his oration against Varus. The executioner, the veiling of the head, and the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, you couldn't crucify Roman citizens, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, for it's not only the actual occurrence of these things, but indeed the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. And so it's a slave's death. In Cicero's time, probably Spartacus' uh, great slave revolt was a memory where they executed on the cross about 2,000 of uh, Spartacus' followers. But it's just the countersign uh, that Christ embraces. What's at the heart of that? Uh, here's some thoughts that come to us from a great Jesuit, Michael Buckley. Michael Buckley was a Jesuit philosopher. He died a few years ago. But one of the books that he wrote, which really is a very thoughtful book about the scriptures, is called, What Do You Seek? The Questions of Jesus' Challenge and Promise. And what he does is he goes through all four of the Gospels and he just picks out questions that Jesus asks. 
And so one of the questions is about the hour of his crucifixion from John chapter 12. And here's the quote. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Because now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. He knew the death he was going to die. We knew know that uh, Lent is a preparation for the story of the crucifixion, which we'll go through on Palm Sunday and again on Good Friday. Uh, so why would Jesus embrace such a dark way of dying, and why would he call it his hours? This is uh, Father Buckley's reflection. He said that in this last century that we've lived through, there's been such significant, he said, even revolutionary advances with American Catholic spirituality, both in its effective understandings, that is how we would understand ourselves, our motives, and our desires, and the effective consequences of what it means to be a Christian. And so we think a lot more about our interior life, but also how what we do affects others. And so, for instance, for Father Buckley, you know, the charges against the Catholic Church in Europe that it didn't make enough objection to Adolf Hitler and the slaughter of the Jews. As you know, that's a very lively topic for conversation. Or it's about social justice in our world. Um, should we be silent about the people on the border or the poor in the streets or racism or drug addiction or the plague of pornography? Uh, it's not enough just have, his point is, just an individualistic interior faith. This is the experience of faith, but it also has to be concerned with the world that is around you. And here's kind of the dichotomy he sees in American culture, at least at the time he wrote the book. How valid it is now, I'll let you think about it. So his idea was that Americans have been a very optimistic people. We think there's going to be a new technology or a new program or a new idea that's going to make everything better. But what he points out is that over the longer term, Christian pessimism has claimed the Christian mind. And that the idea is that for whatever steps we might take forward, there's always some influences, deceptions, hidden temptations of evil and perversion that undermine the promise. Um, you can't ever escape sin. I think that is kind of the basic experience of human beings since the very beginning. And so for him, what's at the issue in our modern world isn't that we can make human advances. It's just that somehow we'll do that without uh, pulling along er errors in our wake. Um, and I think that as you listen to the heated conversation in the secular world and amidst Catholics, it is this kind of battle back and forth between an ideological optimism that there's just one more fix out there. If we were just to do this, or if we just got this candidate, then boy, you should see what happens. I think Buckley's point is, uh, no, uh, all our choices, all our desires, every step forward always comes forward with a hidden cost that will soon become apparent. Uh, and he says at the heart of it, is the cross. And so here's his analysis. He said, human beings expect pleasure to confirm the value of good choices and health and healthy choices. 
make good and healthy choices and things are going to turn out better. I think that's more true than not true. But his point is, is there's a dark side to that. Because when pleasure isn't forthcoming from our moral choices, or when they draw us back in pain, when we meet um, obstacles in our priesthood or in our married life or in the single life, um, it causes us self-doubt that somehow we think if we're on the right path, there isn't supposed to be setbacks. Well, if you listen to the, uh, the podcast that I led about uh, families dealing with addictions, one of the great insights that the three parents on that podcast had is it's necessary for an addict to go through re- rehabilitation, but just once, they said. Because if you keep going back every time you have a relapse, you don't get what the battle to overcome addiction is. Relapses are just part of the process. What's important is you'll learn what you learn in rehab, or maybe you learn what you learn from being a Catholic. And you keep using those tools as you progress in life. That the idea that there will be a relapse, the idea that there will be darkness, this is simply part of the process. What you're hoping is you won't sink as far the, uh, this time as you did in the past. That's a hopeful thing. But still, that you struggle with the burden of sin, this is at the heart of our understanding of human nature and how it is, as St. John Paul would say, that we're strung out between God, um, between good and evil, between God and the devil. So what's at the heart of our vocations, our choices in life? And Father Buckley says uh, it's the same thing as at the heart of the cross, that the choices we make, the attractions we have, at the heart of it, the choice is always love. Uh, Love and pleasure are not the same thing. Someone in love can find great pleasure, but love doesn't reduce just to pleasure. And I think anyone who's been married or been a parent or been a priest or a deacon very long understands that this is just the reality of human existence. Um, the, The problem of seeking pleasure, just wanting to do what pleases me, is it challenges the strength or the continuity of any choice we make in life including the choice to follow the Lord. Because love that seeks pleasure or the payoff or that we achieve the goals we want to achieve is um, just waiting for relapse. And relapse leads to despair, and despair despair can lead to abandoning the entire project. Um, There's a song uh, by Leonard Cohen, uh, How Much Darker Do You Want It? Uh, And the idea is is that darkness comes with the entire human project. That's why every time it gets dark, you light the fire. And so when despair hits or the setbacks fall in, when you're despaired, um, how many times has this been a rebirth of faith when you recognize you really can't do it on your own? So whatever we choose, it has to be supported by love. And as we know from our Catholic faith, The true source of love is not the Constitution of the United States, our political beliefs, material gain. Uh, The true source of love is God. And so you have to stay connected with God. And so that if you have a self-sacrificing love in whatever your vocation in life is, Father Buckley's insight is uh, that you are participating um, in, in love. 
you know, think about the story of Jesus. Um, all of the things that we see in Jesus throughout the gospel are always there. It's just as he goes through the various challenges of unbelief of disciples, oppositions from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the encounter with um, people who cannot see Jesus healing or feeding as really an act of God, but see some demonic purpose in it all. That instead of despairing, Jesus just doubles down uh, until it leads to the darkness of the cross, the stumbling block for Jews and um, foolishness for the Gentiles. Because at the heart of it, what is revealed on the cross is the unwavering trust and faith that the crucified Jesus has in, uh, in his Father. So the passion in any of the four Gospels is not a, the defeat or the destruction of Jesus, though he dies. He said the passion really reveals um, the triumph of God because in a situation as dark as death, to trust in God, to open yourself to God, is in fact the triumph of love in your life. I anointed a man um, just the other day who was preparing for his death. And he was an elderly man and well into his 90s. And when I anointed him, uh, he raised his hands up to heaven and looked into heaven. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is it. Um, death is inevitable, friends. Uh, setbacks, inevitable. Uh, that evil will have its day. Uh, this is just human experience but it's not falling into despair because despair is the cross and the cross looks um, like a countersign to the Jews who see him as an accursed man. It seems foolish to the Greeks who see Jesus as a slave. You know, uh, the power of the cross, which is, it's really amazing if you think that in 300 years, the cross brought um, sacrifice to an end uh, in, in the pagan world. We still struggle with paganism. All you have to do is read the papers or, or look at the kind of counter-religions that people uh, fall into. Um, but what Jesus overcomes is hell and despair at the cross. Because even in the darkest day, he realized that uh, God will see him through. You know, so what would have happened if the gospel had ended differently? Not with the stumbling block for the Jews or foolishness for the Greeks. What if Jesus had decided to just give in to the temptations of the devil? If you remember for the first Sunday of Lent, uh, he jumped off the table and floated, uh, jumped off the temple and floated through the air. Jumping off the table, less dramatic, but same effect. Um, or what if he'd used his powers so that he took care of himself and his disciples? Um, what if he had just sold out so that, you know, he could put in the right program uh, into all the nations? But you know what Jesus' rejection of those three temptations are is uh, earthly food, earthly pleasures. This is not what's going to see us through. That power this ultimately isn't going to see us through. That uh, showing these great supernatural signs, this isn't ultimately the gospel. And it's why in 
the reading from um, uh, the first reading where St. Paul talks about Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then St. Paul says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And it's all made present in the cross. Um, it's so interesting that there is so much um, adversity throughout 2,000 years to the Christian method, message. And it's simply that the gospel is, by many people, not believed. They trust in power. They trust in their bank accounts. Uh, they trust in their own sense of glory. Um, but they'll all lead to a despair, ultimately, uh, that isn't overcome. And so I'd like to take time now and turn to the two major readings for the, first, uh, for the third Sunday of Lent, because at the heart of it is the sense of the Christian life made present, both in Exodus' story of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and then John's story of Jesus cleansing the temple. But let's remember that both of these are example of the wisdom and power of God. So Christ, the power and wisdom of God. So the first reading um, for the third Sunday of Lent wasn't 1 Corinthians. It's uh, from Exodus chapter 20. And it's the people that are uh, gathered in the wilderness around Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up and God gives them the Decalogue, which uh, are the, the commandments, I think, that are recognized by all the people of the books of the book. And so here's what Exodus 20 says. In those days, God delivered all these commandments. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished the one who takes his name in vain. Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, that you may have a long life in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You should not kill, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor, you should not covet your neighbor's house, you should not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female slave, nor his ox or ass, nor anything that belongs to him. Uh, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. You know, I was meeting with a young couple and they were asking about why there are different versions of the Ten Commandments. And the biggest change is, remember there on the first tablet in the Catholic version, um, there are three commandments. I am the Lord your God. You should not have other gods besides me. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. But in how the Orthodox number and uh, the various Christian denominations that have come out of the reform of Martin Luther, Henry VIII, and Calvin and Zwingli, they, on that first tablet, have four commandments. And the one that they add is, uh, you shall not uh, worship idols. You shall not make idols for yourself. So that would make it four commandments. And then what they would do at the last two commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or ass, um, or anything that he has. What the Orthodox and Reformed religions do, they add you shall not uh, make idols for yourself. Uh, and I think that when you say you shall have no other gods besides me, 
Um, it's just a redundancy that's in Exodus 20, but they treat it as a separate commandment. And then I think they treat the last two, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, uh, nor your neighbor's wife, uh, or anything that he owns, uh, as that's uh, redundant. And so they make that to one commandment. Still still comes out to the Decalogue 10. But basically, it's all the same commandments. I don't think there, there's any great um, dispute there. But the heart of it is, and I think it's important to think about it, is that there are these two tablets. Tablet one is the love of God, the sanctity of God, his divine name, the sanctity of time when you deal with the Sabbath, and then there's the love of neighbor, starting with learning to love your parents, even, you know, when they're difficult, because other people are going to be difficult. Still, they may not inspire a lot of feeling in you, but um, you're supposed to want their good. Um, you don't ever return, you know, uh, insult for injury. Uh, and then, you know, about do not murder, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of property. Everybody should have a place where they feel safe. Then the sanctity of speech and reality, don't misrepresent the truth. Then um, another spouse and another's property. Um, the place where families are nurtured, that's all about love of neighbor, and that's the second uh, tier of it. Um, the reason we follow the commandments the way we do, numbered the way we do, is because that's how St. Augustine uh, put him together. Um, and then the Orthodox have their own reasons for why they do it. Um, but at the, same, at the same point, it's all really about the same thing, to love God. Uh, it's his sanctity, his divine name, and it's the sanctity of the time that he has given us. The love of neighbor is parents, uh, others' lives, our lives, marriage, property, um, the truth, reality, and then uh, other people's little worlds where they get to raise their family. And so the Decalogue really is rooted in natural law. You could come to the same rules other people do uh, that are not Christian, um, but that the Decalogue sets the field of play for the Christian, um, what you do, what you don't do. And so there's all sorts of things you don't do. You don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, you don't spend all your time thinking about what other people have and what you can get out of it. And in that space, that freedom from those kinds of temptations should give you, you'll learn to love God. And you'll learn to see how God is in the present moment. You don't make things God, which is always the problem of the second table of commandments. And then the sanctity of time. You know, the idea that we have an obligation uh, to worship God, because he is the source of our being. And how you learn to worship and what you worship forms how you pretty much think about everything. And so think about all of that as you think about the gospel for this Sunday, which comes um, from the gospel of John. And uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, Passover is near. And in John's gospel, I think Jesus goes up three times to Jerusalem to, um, to the feasts. Um, but Passover is where his last visit will end with his crucifixion. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and uh, the Passover of the Jews was near. The actual Greek word is Judeoi, which means uh, Judeans. So remember, Jesus is a hick from Galilee. The Judeans are the big city. They control the temple. So it's not how we think about rabbinic Judaism. 
This is the clash between Jews that are in Jerusalem and Jews from outside, uh, because they're all Jews. So he found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves. They would be for sacrifices, as well as the money changers seated there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. Do you remember how his mom and dad had offered two turtle doves um, when he was taken to the temple in Luke? His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. At this, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Remember, Jews want signs. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Judeans said, the Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body according to the Gospel of John. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they came to believe the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. And while he was in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, many began to believe in the name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all. And he need not anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. So what do you make of that? Um, the idea of putting together God's commandments in the first task, the first tablet is all about the love of God, his name, um, that you don't have idols, that, uh, that you keep holy the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus is the most religious of Jews. So when he cleanses the temple, is it really a sign that the first century is so corrupt? Or is the sign that, because we put this with the Ten Commandments, that um, it's the temple in our hearts that are corrupt. If we're part of the risen body of Christ, which is the new temple, the body of Christ, that um, we cloud our judgment with all sorts of things that keep us uh, from coming to God. Remember Father Buckley as he talked about um, uh, the problem of, um, of having an overly optimistic idea of what, uh, what life could be. Uh, but uh, Jesus puts the destruction of the temple together with his own destruction. Do you remember he says, unless a, a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it'll only remain a grain of wheat. That Jesus, when he falls into the ground um, and he rises from the dead, um, that a change has taken place. That's why looking forward to the Easter and the stories of the resurrection, Pay attention to how many times the apostles don't recognize them. But why is it that the resurrection, you have to go through this passion? You have to face despair. St. Cyril of, Al of uh, Jerusalem used to say, you have to walk by the dragon because the dragon wants you to believe that you're just a human being and that you can be satisfied just with meeting your bodily appetites and getting ahead. Um, that when you die, the great uh, opium of the elite is uh, it all ends anyway. You're not going to remember him any because you won't be there. Um, religion isn't the opium of the masses. Um, the idea that uh, God doesn't see, God doesn't punish, this is the opium of the proud and the grasping. 
And what does the passion show? The passion shows that Jesus submits himself to wicked people, to a slave's death, according to Cicero. And so the grain of wheat, um, it's cold and dark and wet in the ground where the grain of wheat goes. It gradually breaks apart, disintegrates, decomposes. But it's that germ within that brings new life. How much do we leave behind in the resurrection? You know, I was reading, I've, I've been doing that Lenten ser series, and I've really enjoyed reading Peter Kreef's book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Heaven. And one of the things he says that really hit home about what's going to be in heaven, he says, if it's something we made in this world, it'll die with this world. The things that are there in heaven are the things that God makes. Um, and what does God make? God makes us into saints because we learn to love God and love our neighbor. We create this place for uh, the Holy Spirit to dwell because we observe those Ten Commandments, love of God, and how it is that we love neighbor by respecting uh, boundaries with them. Um, and so that it creates a place where grace can work. Um, that's the importance of the moral life. Um, we don't make ourselves saints. We don't work ourselves into sanctity. But those things that we do cooperate very much with the power of sanctifying grace in our life. And so the wisdom of God, St. Paul concludes in that second reading from 1 Corinthians, um, that uh, the weakness of God is more powerful than the strength of human beings. You know, there's one other place, I love it, it's in Luke 12, where the Sadducees question uh, what it means to rise from the dead. Remember the, one, the story about the woman who, had, woman who had seven husbands? And when Jesus says to the Sadducees, he could say to all of us, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. So understand what Jesus overcomes on the cross is the threat of hell, despair, that all our lives is about this. He overcomes that in his death and his resurrection and despair by his trust in God. Because at the end of the day, what Lent's supposed to teach us is that's all we have. And that's why we look forward to Easter. So this has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. Hope to see you this weekend at Mass or go to Mass wherever you go. And remember the promises of Christ. <laughs>